You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Monday, January the 22nd. Wild and woolly here in TW11. Gusts of 70, 80 miles an hour blowing across the southeast of England this morning with Storm Isha wreaking significant havoc across the land overnight. But before the wind really picked up and after the significant freeze had relented and thawed, there was just enough time to get in a couple of very significant fixtures in Ireland and Britain. In Ireland, first of all, Alaho beat a couple of stable companions in the horse and jockey at Thurless. It was inconclusive exactly what he achieved, but clearly he is a horse who remains in good heart and he hardens for the Ryanair chase at the Cheltenham Festival. A couple of years ago, you might have thought that a target for the hero at Lingfield Park, but there's only one target now for the returning hero that is Lom Presse, off the track for 13 months and not without a significant degree of heartache about which you'll hear in a few moments time he stormed to success and beating former gold cup third and multiple grade one champion protectorat in the process this the last winter millions to be held at the surrey trackers next year it moves as we anticipated on friday's podcast to windsor Racecourse for a brand new berkshire festival more of that later but what newsboy of the daily mirror david yates of lingfield on sunday you were there sum it up for us well, after the frustrations of Friday when the first day of the Winter Million was lost to the weather, I think this was payback time and that's exactly what we got. I thought it was a really enjoyable day. It was a really stirring battle for the Fleur de Lis chase between Lom Presse and Protectorat. Protectorat, of course, had the full penalty uh, for his uh, Grade 1 win and so he was giving Lom Presse uh, four pounds here. There was two and a quarter lengths between them at the line and they were a massive 19 lengths to the good of I Will Do it so uh, both horses came out of that race i think um with their reputations intact elsewhere we had a gamble for the skeletons on nurse susan we had a a, a victory and the first in some time for first flow that old favorite to kim bale is of course uh, a clarence house chase winner himself uh, from the past he was scoring for the first time since January 2023 when he beat Politologue at Ascot that day. Even those of us who had backed him at Chepstow last time and saw him beaten by Kel Destin uh, could not deny him uh, his return to the winner's enclosure here. That was great to see. Um, we also had a really dramatic lightning novices chase. Of course, that was... Uh, restaged from Friday. There was a mid-air collision at the first between Matata and the favourite J-Lo. J-Lo came down um, as a result of that. Again, those of us who backed Matata thought that we were in business, but we reckoned without JPR1, uh, who got the better of proceedings by half a length and in doing so earned a 14-to-1 quote for the Arkle at Cheltenham in March. Not sure I'll be in a massive rush to take that. 
I don't know. I think I'd be a bit more positively disposed, but I agree. It's a, an uphill battle to get the better of Marine Nationale and co. What about Lompresse then? In a moment, you'll hear from his rider, Charlie Deutsch. But first of all, and you've heard from him plenty on this podcast over the last couple of years, and you've known what a labour of love it is to get this horse back in the winner's enclosure, back to a race course even, for Andy Edwards. Uh, and I spoke with him last evening, and this is what he had to say. About an hour after the race, an hour and a half after the race, I was up with Venetia in a small bar with Martin Crudace and um, and we had a little chink of glasses and I said, Venetia, that was bigger than Cheltenham. And she said, really? I said, it was bigger. Emotionally, that was so much bigger. 13 months of sort of angst and worry and all the effort and everything and all, all, all the staff, everybody at home, uh, at Venetia's and herself and they put so much into this horse you know we were all crying so but you can hear in my voice I'm still a little bit tearful now I, I do get it because it's not just about what the last 13 months have been it's it's everything that went before that because you were already massively invested in this horse before I'm not talking about the finance of it it's the fact that you just sort of plucked him from total obscurity and basically a state of, of disrepair from from nowhere, really. Just dial it all back to the first time you clapped eyes on him. Yeah, I, I remember walking into this yard in Normandy. He was the only horse in the yard. And um, my very good friend, Robert Wolford, I asked to come over and pick him up. And there has to be a massive thanks that, to Robert Wolford for everything he did to help me with this horse um and he did the recuperation for me um he came and picked him up and took him back to his yard in dorset and robert and i are great mates and um you know i, I really need to say thank you to robert for this as well from the beginning is it worth is it worth just revisiting why you, in your heart of hearts, thought Venetia Williams was the right person to put the finishing touches on him. Yeah, I mean, listen, everybody knows what a great trainer is, a great trainer she is, and what, what wonderful trainer of chasers she is. And um, I knew we had to be really patient and that any sort of rushing him into something wasn't going to work, as has been proved today. And Venetia, when I came back from France, Venetia was the first port of call for, for him. And, um, yeah, what a good decision I made there. <laughs> well, you did. And I, I think I, I wonder, I mean, I look at the two runs the horse had in France. They were obviously okay. But why did you think he was any good? Well, I had the... I had the um, the benefit of seeing him in the box as an injured horse um, with Robert that day and he was gangly he was an immature lad and watching the videos at Fontainebleau I just thought if he could do that as a four year old when he clearly clearly was a six year old seven year old in the making he must be quite good and um, obviously it's well documented he had a leg um, um, but we felt that, um, you know, if we gave him the right amount of time, it would be okay. And um, you just see something in him, and I connected with him 
the minute I walked in the yard and walked up to him, it was um, it was a it was a huge connection between the two of us, and um, the, he was not going anywhere else except home with us. I love that. I love the fact that it's just a man and a beast connecting, and the rest has, has happened in this extraordinary way with twists and turns along the way. Uh, how do you think he won? He won the race at, at Linkfield. Did he win it by outstaying Protectorat, outclassing him? How did how did he win it? Do you think? Well, to be honest, the first circuit, um, I thought he was very ring rusty. He jumped first four terribly, crashed the first one, ballooned the next, then sort of hopped over the next one, then ballooned the fourth. And he wasn't really travelling very well. He just didn't seem to get in a rhythm. I don't know whether the first fence sort of came up quickly on him um, and sort of got him on the back foot. But when they started going down the back straight and they upped the pace, um, that was more his type of pace for his jumping. And I could see him every time he jumped that he was um, he was gaining ground on protector out in front. Um, uh, going up the hill, Charlie had to just niggle at him to keep him going up the hill. Um, and Charlie said he wasn't totally happy with him until he started coming down the hill. Um, but the, the great thing about this horse, and like we see it on the gallops and in the yard, uh, he's got, he won't be beaten. He's got a thing about him is you know, I'm the boss and you're going to come second. And when they came round the bend, I could I could see in, it, in his in his eyes, even from that far away, if that sounds a bit, a bit odd, but I could see in his eyes, he sort of looked slightly left to the other horse and, and went, no. Nah. You know, and it was about jumping yeah. and coming through. He, he knows how to win, uh, that's for sure, and you see that in his record. And obviously now the target has been has been the, the Gold Cup, and as Venetia said, he needs to build a little bit on that, but she's not going to be someone who tur- turns up to any race with, a, with an unfit horse. Will you be in this horse's box tomorrow, and how anxious will you be? Well, after the race, I was in his box, and um, no doubt I'll be there in the morning. I, I'm not anxious at all, I mean, Today we'll bring him on a lot. He had a, a decent blow after the race. Um, but by the time I got back to him in his uh, stable at Lingfield tonight, he was completely recovered, head up. He was his boyish self um, and looking for carrots off me. And, um, yeah, I, you know, that would have brought him on a lot today. Confidence mentally and emotionally as much as anything. That would have brought him on a lot. And you look at it now, from now on in, I'm guessing you just, you don't get another run in, or do you get another run in? Well, listen, obviously, everyone's going to say we see how he comes out of the race, but plan A would be to go to the Ascot Chase on the 17th of Feb, if it was soft, two miles five, um, and take that in on the way. You have to take your opportunities as they come, and we waited a long time with him, Um you know, for today, if he comes out of it, fine, and he's ready in four weeks' time, then we go to Ascot. If not, we plan B would be go straight to the Gold Cup. Andy, what a story. Um, just another chapter on the way, I'm sure. I wish you all the best. Thanks so much for talking to me. It's all a journey, Nick, and a wonderful journey it is. Thank you very much. 
All right, well, the man who rode Long Presse, Charlie Deutsch, is with me now. Uh, Charlie, it, it's interesting watching the race today. He was never stronger than at the finish. Were there any stages where you were, were at all concerned or were you always happy? Um, no, I, I was, obviously he jumped the first a bit strangely um, and then went left um, at the one up the hill. And uh, Protector Act, always, he's a keen going horse, but he always looked comfortable, whereas I was squeezing away and um, I was a little bit worried a lot of the way. Um, and then I thought, I've got to try and get to him at the top of the hill so I can join him going down the hill, um, turning into the straight. And um, and then he's really come alive. And um, yeah, the, that part of the race, he's, he felt brilliant. Um, but the first part of the race, he was quite laid back and... Uh, just t- took a bit of time to find his feet and I wasn't sure we weren't I've, I've been in better rhythms on him you know throughout the race but uh, despite that he's he's flown the last three fences and jumped well so um, yeah and it was nice to see him run through the line like he did mm. he finished really with his with his ears pricked and finished hard and and full of running and I you know we remember back to when he was a novice and winning the turners and when he ran in the King George with a question mark, people were saying, "Well, ooh, would he would he stay a Gold Cup trip? Is he is he an absolute out and out stayer?" Uh, you'd have, you'd have taken encouragement from that in that respect today, wouldn't you? Or is that misleading? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I've always, as a from my point of view, I've always felt like he's he's a stayer. He's um, he, he he doesn't do anything in a rush, and he's got a nice big stride. And um, yeah, he takes his he can take his time to warm up, and then does his best work at the end. So. Um, but he's not slow either, which is what which is what you need, and that, that's why he's such a good horse. But um, yeah, today um, no, it was nice to s- the way he's gone about it, and he, he's he's felt like a stare definitely. And, and talking to Andy Edwards just there a few moments ago, and he was saying you you bowl on to to Ascot, and and of course that's two five, uh, and the ground is possibly going to be a little bit better than it than it was today, or a little more even than it was today. Uh, but do you think that's the that's the sort of preparation that will leave him with still a bit in the tank for the Gold Cup, not sort of taking him over three and a quarter miles too early? Um, it doesn't. I don't think. Um, I don't think it bothers him really. I think if he if he ran over three miles, I don't think it would take too much out of him because um, that's the trip he needs really. Yeah. Um, but he can sort of drop back in trip, and as you saw today, and um, in. Um, that's what the good horses can do. Um, it's not all about the exact distance, but um, yeah, um, I, I wouldn't be put off by it at all. And just in terms of his his recent work at at home and and what he's been what he's been showing you, did you go into today with the confidence that you should do with a horse who went off eleven to eight on? Um. I, just, I was quite open-minded to be honest um, I, I, in my opinion he was the best horse going into the race but whether he'd show that I, don't, I didn't know um, uh, Jess at home has been riding him and um, well everyone has been putting in a good bit of work into him um, as in um, uh, physio and things and, um, and and trying to get him ready for the day um, so uh, yeah I um I was very open-minded going into it because I thought, you know, I hope he runs a good race, but uh, it's obviously a long time, long time since he last ran, and um, I just hope he feels good and jumps well and jumps straight and um, feels supple, and which he did. So um, he was just a little bit rusty at first, but yeah, which is expected, really. 
Charlie Deutsch there. And before that, Andy Edwards. Uh, Dave Yates, you've been in close contact with this owner. You and I have spoken about him before. He was on the podcast just last week. He was in tears on ITV Racing and, and couldn't say an awful lot. Uh, he was composed, I think, in a local tapas bar and was able to say a bit more when I spoke to him yesterday evening. And, and it's hard not to feel great warmth toward uh, what he uh, has helped Venetia Williams achieve. You'd need an absolute heart of stone not to appreciate Andy Edwards. Um, he calls himself not an owner, but a privileged guardian of uh, L'Ompresse. And he he's an extraordinary man. We know about uh, his, his methods uh, with horses, how he loves to work on their emotional intelligence, very much... Um, using the carrot rather than the stick. And uh, in L'Ompresse, those beliefs, that that credo, that philosophy, if you will, um, has borne fruit. Um, it, it's great to talk to him. I, I, saw, I saw him on my way into Lingfield and wished him all the best. And as you say, you know, afterwards, um, you've got the option. Charlie Deutsch uh, talks to us uh, in... Uh, quite flowingly about how he felt L'Ompresse had a, a bit of ring rust about him. Um, Venetia Williams it, it never gushes, but she said, you know, she was pleased and it, that, to see the horse back from such uh, a lengthy absent, absence, 391 days, that that was a relief and that she thought there was a bit of improvement to come. But the star of the show is Andy Edwards, and he was in tears afterwards, and it was quite difficult to to interview him. But the uh, the, the love and the passion that he has, not just for this horse, but for other horses too. Um, I did a, a piece with Andy for the the Racing TV magazine, and, and he was talking about um, a horse that that they that he has who who can't race because of injury, but does an awful lot of work. Uh, with children in uh, helping them along mentally. And we know about uh, that particular relationship between humans and horses. Um, if only there were more uh, owners like Andy Edwards in the game. As I say, he, he, his methods are unusual, but they're not to be laughed at. We all know that, uh, we, we all talk about how uh, horses have huge um emotional intelligence and that's that's the basis of of how Andy Edwards works with his horses it, it's not all kumbaya um it, there are bits uh, to to what he does that that we all um row in with and i i, I was I, I was really delighted to see Lon Presse come back and and win the Fleur de Lis chase i i hope that he's going to be um, a, a really strong con contender for the Cheltenham Gold Cup in March. Uh, the difficulty, the stumbling block, of course, is, is reigning champion Galapin Deschamps, who was absolutely imperious uh, when he won the Savills chase at Leopardstown over Christmas. But if you were to take out Galapin Deschamps, then the rest of them are fighting amongst themselves uh, for that crown. And L'Ompresse is certainly in that mix. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what about the runner-up protector out? Spoke to Dan Skelton. He said, we ran well, jumped great, got beat. No excuses before, none after. Fair play to the winner. I feel like protector out is back to his normal self, which is great. So we'll have a poke at the Denman chase and good on him. He might be taking on Shishkin and Brave Man's game if he goes to the, the Denman chase at Newbury on Super Saturday a couple of weeks from now.
I walked out of the track uh, at Lingfield with Harry Skelton, and and he was a very similar mind. And looking at the the maths of the case, Nick, you can you can see why, can't you? They've uh, they've been beaten two and a quarter lengths, and they've given the winner four pounds. I, I think that they know that the Cheltenham Gold Cup is stretching it, but it wouldn't surprise you if there's another Grade One victory in Protectorat. He's a nine year old now, but he's still operating at a at a very high level. So. Yeah, it was it was a, a really good result. I must mention before we leave the action at Lingfield that the Surrey National moved the chains. Gary Moore and Kaylin Quinn, a horse who's a real specialist at Lingfield. He's won five races there now. He beat Animal, who was uh, a very gallant runner up in second place. Moved the chains, of course, a Lingfield specialist. And now this race is going to move to Windsor. Yes, because yesterday. Saturday, in the middle of the afternoon, it was announced by ARC, the Arena Racing Company, parent company of Lingfield and Windsor, that with the new, old, new, old, new jumps track returning to the Royal Windsor Racecourse, that the Winter Millions would be moved and it would be at the bookend of a Berkshire Festival with the Ascot-Clarence House fixture on the Saturday in between. So it would go Windsor-Ascot-Windsor within six miles of each other, the two tracks, trying to get a big London audience, big promotion. Ascot very enthused by this. It's a bit of a coup for ARC, I think, to get Asker on board as a co-promoter of a big Berkshire festival. Uh, but where does it leave Lingfield Park? Because they've now had another big asset stripped of them. That following the all-weather finals day, which has moved up to Newcastle, David. Yeah, that's disappointing. And it's it's one of my local tracks, Lingfield, and I'm extremely fond of it. Um, this, as you say, denudes it of its, of its main jumps, Fixture, fixture. It's it's lost the all weather finals day. I was rather hoping that the all weather finals day could become a travelling circus, a bit peripatetic, a bit like the Breeders' Cup, if you like, um, where it could go to different arc venues. But I know that that's not on the table currently. But yeah, this is disappointing for Lingfield. Um, it's it's it serves its purpose, doesn't it? As uh, an all weather venue, a couple of times a week, serving up the 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 betting shop fodder and getting the the media rights money as a result those of us who have been regular visitors there over the years know it's more than that but what have we got in the cupboard now we've pretty much got the um the lingfield derby trial and the oaks trial and that's pretty much it apart from that the the cupboard's pretty bare i'm sorry to say arc however are not short of opportunism when the um occasion arises and a word reaches me dave that that was the case before the weekend we uh, prophesied not not particularly cleverly on friday that the clarence house chase would likely to move to cheltenham and that's exactly what's happening and it, it would get reopened and i was reminded by the bha that it is now uh, a formal protocol rather than uh, a choice that races like this are re-offered when they're restaged at a different track. That's what's happened. And we heard from Gary Moore, editor of Jeep would run. Dan Skelton confirmed that Newby Negra would be entered into the race as well as unexpected party. So it's filling up quite nicely. Boot Hills are possible, Harry Fry was saying. Even though Al Fabiolo won't run, it looks as though it'll be a, a deeper addition of the Clarence House chase. But it came to my attention that Doncaster uh, reportedly, uh, obviously a, another arc race course, bid more money to stage the Clarence House chase or, or su suggested their executive contribution would be greater than than Cheltenham's if they were to run it. Yet the, the fixture got given to Cheltenham. Now, I did a little bit of background and 
found this to be true, um, the BHA obviously wouldn't confirm or, or deny this. But I did ask them to clarify what decisions would, would or how this decision might be arrived at if you had more than one race course bidding for a restaged race. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a reply from Richard Wayman, the chief operating officer of the BHA, who said the main consideration is where we think we would get the best race. Whenever we reschedule, we spend a bit of time speaking to the trainers likely to be involved to try to form a view of who would run what and where. We look at the money and how much each applicant is offering. Then there are other factors like number of race goers at the alternative venues and fitting into TV, TV schedules, etc. It's not always a straightforward decision. So what do you make of that little lot, Dave? Yeah, it's I, well. I, I think it's. I, I was surprised to hear that. I must say um, that uh, Donkster were offering a bigger contribution. I, I think that that um, that catch-all of where we would have the best race. It, it's a bit like ungentlemanly conduct uh, for for booking players in football, isn't it? Um, I can see where they're coming from in the sense that Cheltenham might marginally be. Uh, the the stronger race, but it's pretty marginal, isn't it? I mean, how many horses for a, a big pot like that would not go to Doncaster if they would have gone to Cheltenham? It, it's hard to think that if we compared the 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 likely ground at uh, the two tracks, well, we'd say it it gets pretty soft at uh, Cheltenham on Trials Day, and it can get pretty soft at Doncaster too. Um, yeah, I I think that's a a, a, a strange one. I think that the the um, as I say that uh, where we could provide the best race sort of just about gets them off the hook in in terms of the decision to uh, stage this race at Doncaster. It's uh, sorry, it's Cheltenham. It's a big card at Doncaster. It's the it's the Sky Bet Chase this Saturday. So it's not as if we're looking at some tin pot fixture where a, a, a race like that would look out of place we, we know that Cheltenham st has staged this race many times in the past including 12 months ago and it looks to me like they've gone for the safest option but according to your sources and and I'm sure they're very good sources it's not the most remunerative one indeed not though trainers clearly have had options put on the table right um Michael Owen and Hugo Palmer, amongst others, including Dan Skelton and Daryl Jacob, were guests on my Racing TV Sunday programme yesterday. And given that you, I knew you were going to be on this show this morning, uh, I thought you would be interested in something that Michael Owen said when I asked him about racing's drive to attract a broader, more diverse and younger audience uh, with his background in one of the world's most popular sports and having been such a, a talismanic figure within it. And this is what he had to say. Um, I, I think as well, you know, sometimes we try to, to go after things that aren't that, you know, do we want that football culture? We, you know, we say we want, we, we want that younger crowd, we want this, we want that, but, you know, do we? Do we? Do we want that sort of that, you know, I've, I've been in football all my life and, and, you know, I wouldn't really want to take my kids to a football game nowadays. So a lot of, a lot of drinking, there's a lot of swearing, there's a lot of all kinds of things. And, you know, football crowd is a, is a certain type, you know, it's necessarily the racing crowd as well. And I, I, I don't really get that when people say, oh, we need to, to bring that type of, of, of crowd in. Um, there's a lot to, to, uh, to be able to shout about in the game. And as I say, I'm very positive about it, notwithstanding the fact that we do need to, to obviously uh, get our ducks in a row a little bit.
one of the most decorated footballers of all time, Michael Owen, speaking on my racing TV programme yesterday. Right, David Yates, what did you think of that? It rather surprised me. We know that racing is a sport that takes an awful lot of knowing, like the best people in your life. But ultimately, we all feel that it's worth it. And and I do have some sympathy with, uh, with, with his views, I must say. I think that if you get... Uh, scenes that you know that even the uh the seven nation army song da 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 when we had frankie de Tori at ascot uh when he came in uh after having won the the, the champion stakes in in such uh dramatic style in october um you have, I think, a, a year or so ago at Cheltenham uh when they sang uh the tune of uh Baby Give It Up uh, by um, Casey and the Sunshine Band to Ellie Ellie May, Ellie Ellie May. I do find that a bit boring and I find it a bit boorish. Um, whether that's brought around by, brought about by just uh, getting young people on the race course and getting them absolutely tanked up, I don't know. Uh, but I do have some th sympathy with what he says. Uh, and I'm, I'm 55. I'm not an old person who sort of thinks, oh, you know, who let them in? I just think that surely it's possible for everyone to be on a race course and to behave with uh, consideration for others. Um, I, I, I took your point about um, football. Those people who go to um, Crystal Palace, uh, which is, uh, well, was my local club where I used to go for the last two decades, would have set, would have observed how, how gentrified Selhurst Park has uh, become over that time. Um, but again, that, that's, that's something that I, I don't think we should um, necessarily mourn because Football could be very rough when I first started going in the in the 1980s. But I digress. I, I think it's possible to get young people on the race course and in some way not just get them there for a big boozing session or worse. We know that there are uh, lots of drugs consumed on British race courses as well. Surely it's possible to get them there, get them there enjoying the sport, to appreciate it, to grow, to love it, um, to 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 grow their knowledge of it and for everybody to behave with consideration towards others. Uh, as I say, I, I can see his point of view, but we're not in a position where we don't where we shouldn't be growing that audience, but I think it's perfectly possible, and I think it's the best thing to do to uh, aim for a happy medium. There aren't enough nice things to say about Pontefract Racecourse, and they are leading the way once again by partnering with Autism in Racing to provide spaces on the racecourse that those who have any disorder that is on the autistic spectrum may find. Um, a kinder, more welcoming space. Bobby Beavers is the founder of Autism in Racing and is here to tell me a little bit more. Uh, Bobby, you love Ponty. We all love Ponty. It's a wonderful race course, brilliantly run by Norman Gundel and his team. Tell me how they're helping you. Yeah, helping me massively, uh, to be fair, Nick. You know, we're going into our third year now with, with Autism in Racing. We've got more race courses getting involved than, than ever before, really. Lots of new race courses hosting Autism Friendly Days for the first time this year. And, and the great thing about it is that I've been having numerous meetings towards the back end of last year with, with Richard Hamill. And we were discussing, you know, how can we make, you know, Pontefract Racecourse where they can host 
every fixture for 2024 as an autism friendly day and I'm, I'm delighted to say that that's going to happen the first ever race course possibly in the world you know that that's how uh, fantastic this is so they, they, they'll be the first race course to host an autism friendly day through us autism in racing we're going to be hosting uh, all the days for them and as you say there's going to be a mobile sensory room uh, on the course at every single uh, meeting which is going to be a space for people who, who are autistic to, to, to head there uh, should they need to use it it's there to help them in, in any way uh, they see possible and also an additional quiet space as well well we're going to be providing teas and coffees and and drinks and that as, as an additional quiet space as well so very excited but the the, the big headline is that for this year for 2024 every single fixture at Pontefract Racecourse will be autism friendly the, the, we documented your story quite well because one of your children was um, diagnosed as autistic and then you 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 yourself subsequent to that uh, was diagnosed uh, with with having a, a disorder on the autistic spectrum can you can you give us some indication as to, to how that manifests itself in crowded spaces and why sometimes a, a big crowd and a lot of noise can be somewhat problematic yeah, I, I think to be honest with you, Nick, you know, sometimes when you're in a, a huge crowd, you know, obviously there's a lot of people there anyway, and, and it can be quite uh, intimidating. And I think it can be intimidating for, you know, a lot of people, not just necessarily for people who are autistic, but there's there's more things that go with it. So obviously you've got your busy crowd. It's, it's, it's a busy day. Obviously it's going to be very noisy as well. You, you'll not be able to get round from, uh, from A to B. And, and you know, your emotions can be you know need regulating uh, here as well which could obviously lead to you know to stimming you know etc etc really so i suppose when you've got like a busy day and and let's be honest you get lots of busy days at, at pontifact you know they get some really nice big crowds there as as well you know what what's happening now is that people are going to be able to go and they're going to be able to, to you know to regulate that emotion by by using the sensory room and obviously for people as you know may not know what a sensory room is obviously the sensory room is there to help with you know with that emotion and it's also there to help with with a lot of different things well it can help with anxiety as, as well so it can help with all these great things and it's all to do like with the, with the sounds that the lighting the, the equipment what's in there as well you know people may choose to stay in the sensory room for the whole day they may just keep popping by as they feel uh, they need to and then for the rest of the day they may be walking around the race course with the rear defenders on you know in, enjoying the sport Bobby, it's wonderful that Pontefract are, are taking this up so purposefully and meaningfully. And I know anyone who has experience of or lives with a neurodiversity will be massively grateful to you and, uh, and to your team for everything you've done. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nick. All right. Well, by the time you listen to this, hopefully I will be well on my way to, to Florida. Uh, where I will be attending and co-hosting the Eclipse Awards and also um, helping out with the NBC coverage of the Pegasus World Cup at Gulfstream Park on Saturday. Now, for more on this, I welcome in Gulfstream Park announcer Pete Aiello, the hardest working man in North American horse racing. He has quite literally just called the next race at Gulfstream Park. It was a wonderful call as well. I tuned in for it. Tyler Gaffleyon with another winner. Uh, and Pete is uh, is with me now. Uh, Pete, this must be a, a pretty exciting week week for you. It, tell me a little bit about how you perceive the Pegasus as part of the uh, North American racing firmament nowadays. 
Well, I mean, I think that uh, even the race before it was officially known as the Pegasus was a key stepping stone to the, the handicapping division in North America, and it certainly still is that way. Um, you know, some could argue that a couple of the star players are skipping it and waiting for uh, Saudi Arabia, but that doesn't take away from the fact that we still have some really good horses and some really good races. And, uh, you know, uh, getting getting Aiden O'Brien in the house for with Warm Heart, that was a heck of a get. Yeah, Warm Heart, of course, who is in the Pegasus turf. I mean, she lays over the field in terms of class, but I look at the race and I think, well, she's going to have to because it's a biggish field, it's a tightish track, the emphasis is, is on more speed than perhaps would necessarily have been her game so far. Will she just get away with it and outpoint out them on ability? I mean, I think so. I mean, I think the one the one chink you could have tried to poke in her armor is that she wouldn't be used to firm turf like she has uh, raced or has, has not raced over uh, across the pond. But then she ran in the Breeders' Cup at San Anita over a turf course that was every bit, if not firmer than the one she'll run at at Gulfstream. And she ran huge. So uh, I don't think that's an issue. So the, the one thing I could have poked holes in is no longer a problem. And of course, Aiden has run Magic Wand in this race before, quitted herself extremely well, very tough filly of a not completely dissimilar profile. I do wonder why, given the time of year, given the makeup of some of these races, a few more Europeans don't have half a dart at it. Uh, well, you know, you might know better than me, but, uh, you know, from, from our press standpoint, and I think it's the same in Europe, a lot of guys are shut down this time of year trying to get ready for a spring campaign. So the, the calendar doesn't really do us any favors as far as that goes, because, you know, back home, it's awful cold over there, isn't it? It's kind of hard to get one ready. I mean, I think maybe the better, the better strategy would be to keep them in training and point for this race without shutting down and then having to restart. But I speak, I ask your opinion on that. Yeah, I don't think Aiden ever has a problem preparing horses for races wherever the... What about the main race? What about the Pegasus itself? It's clearly a race that's changed in complexion several times over the years. It's now throwing up perhaps not the the absolute star name in, a, in an exhibition that it used to, but a, a deeper and more kind of contentious affair. Is it better for that? I think so. I mean, at the end of the day, aren't we wanting to bet on these races? I mean, it's great to see stars of the show, but, you know, when you have a horse, like you said, with Warm Heart, that's going to be a very short number. I think that kind of detracts a little bit from uh, what I love about horse racing, which is the gambling aspect of it. So uh, I think from that standpoint, we, we definitely have a more betting competitive race than uh, than we would have if we had got a, a, a star to stick around and, and, and come in for the race. I mean, you know, we all wanted, you know, myself being at the Breeders' Cup in, in November, we were begging for Cody's wish to win the dirt mile and then hoping some, somehow, some way, they'd keep him in training and have a swan song in the, in the Pegasus. That didn't happen, but we do have the horse who he just beat by a nose in that race in National Treasure. So, um, you know, star power-wise, he did win the Preakness last year. It kind of gets forgotten about a little bit, I think. And National Treasure is one of those horses who just sort of sits between those two distances, and it could just be the Preakness winner finds this Pegasus absolutely right up his street do you think he's the horse to beat i do and i think one of the things that you just touched on that's so so important is that those horses that kind of get stuck in the middle distances where they they really aren't fast enough to run you know a seven furlong or a one mile one turn race but they don't really want to go as far as a mile and an eighth around two turns if they're going to get a mile and an eighth our main track at Goldstream is the surface to try it on because our main track is notorious for carrying speed so i think that 
you know, stretching out in distance, probably not his optimum trip, but it is his optimum opportunity to get that trip uh, because we carry speed so, so well. And is it fair to say that Brad Cox is the man that stands in his way? Yeah, um, well, yeah. He, he, being that he's so lightly raced uh, and he's won three out of his last four races, I would say that he probably is the chief challenger. Uh, but Bob Baffert has dominated this race. So from a trainer's profile standpoint, uh, uh, I, I think National Treasure definitely yeah, definitely has the edge. And for those people who haven't been to the, the Pegasus in its sort of modern incarnation, just try and give a flavor of the event and how it differs from other horse racing events. Well, I think that it's kind of like our culture here in South Florida. You know, it's a, it's a distinctly Miami event. So uh, mixed party with horse racing and you have uh, exactly what uh, what the Pegasus is all about. I mean, we have uh, we have nightlife. I mean, the Pegasus is really just the appetizer, the entrees, the after party. So um, it's a very long and enjoyable day, but there's a lot to a lot to enjoy both on the horse racing side of things and then also on the live music side of things, on the fine dining side of things. I I mean, it's really a, it's really an all-encompassing experience as a fan. And all right, if you're going to play these races at the weekend, uh, Pete, give us a give us a couple of ways to play them. Uh, well, I'm interested. The race, Nick, that I like the most is the Philly uh, edition of the Pegasus World Cup, the Philly and Mare Turf. Uh, I'm a Didia fan. I, I don't know what happened in the Breeders' Cup. She's been so, so consistent prior to that race. I think that the turf course here at Gulfstream Park will be something she will really enjoy. She seems to me to be the type of uh, mare that likes to hear her feet rattle, and that's certainly the uh, the makeup of the Gulfstream Park turf course. So uh, I'm going to enjoy Didia, and then uh, I've always uh, gravitated a little bit more to the undercard races to try to find some key plays and part of the reason for that full disclosure is i try to be as focused as i can on the big race and i can get away with a better two on the uh, lesser card races and maybe not uh, tip off anybody as to what's going on you know thank you to pete and to bobby and to charlie and to of course andy edwards and david yates who's with me now and david has a tip for you for today we're going to the opening race at Newcastle today, Nick, and we're going to side with the favourite, Eagles Realm. Uh, this horse is now on a four-timer after three victories on the all-weather. The middle one of those was over Newcastle's two miles, today's course and distance. He's still on a roll. He's had a bit of a break since that last win at Savile, but off just a two-pound higher mark, I think that the four-timer beckons for Eagles Realm here. 350 race at Newcastle, the top weight selection number one eagles realm can lompresse win the gold cup i certainly think he can um as i've said it's all down really to galopin des champs he was very impressive at leopardstown over christmas the gold cup of last year was a race of two halves for galopin des champs he was pretty moderate in the first half of it and he was exceptional in the second half of it if the the leopardstown galopin des champs turns up it's going to be very very difficult for the others but if he doesn't then the horses behind him in the betting fast or slow shishkin jerry colomb long presse and gentleman's gain even hewick they're going to be scrapping uh, for the prize. And as I say, if Galapin Deschamps were to, uh, for any reason, not to uh, produce his very best at Cheltenham on March the 15th, it's up for grabs. And L'Ompresse is very much one of those who is fighting for the crown. All right, David, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be coming to you from Miami tomorrow. But that was Monday, January the 22nd. Bye for now.
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.